If you would, let's go ahead and take our Bibles and turn to Psalm 111, 111. And we're going to continue for a couple more weeks with some individual studies in the Psalms. Uh, we will be returning to our confession study, so we will be coming back to that. But we're going to be looking, beginning looking this morning at the 111th Psalm. And I've already entitled this particular psalm. Again, this is just something I have done out of habit for a number of years. Uh, just give a title to a psalm if I can see throughout the word uh, where there is a recurring theme. And I've simply just entitled this psalm, The Works of the Lord. The Works of the Lord. Simple in name and simple in title. Uh, but I certainly hope that this will be a blessing and encouragement to you. Uh, this has been the passage I have been uh, meditating on personally this week. This is what I have, uh, even in my own personal study, uh, have been spending time with and has been a great help to me. Uh, I'm going to read the entire psalm and then we will pray this morning. Psalm 111. Praise ye the Lord. I will praise the Lord with my whole heart in the assembly of the upright and in the congregation. The works of the Lord are great, sought out of all them that have pleasure therein. His work is honorable and glorious, and His righteousness endureth forever. He hath made His wonderful works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion. He hath given meat unto them that fear Him. He will ever be mindful of His covenant. He hath showed His people the power of His works, that He may give them the heritage of the heathen. The works of his hands are verity and judgment. All his commandments are sure. They stand fast forever and ever and are done in truth and uprightness. He sent redemption unto his people. He hath commanded his covenant forever. Holy and reverend is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all they that do his commandments. His praise endureth forever. As we begin this morning, let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we praise you and thank you for this wonderful psalm. This psalm this morning that will remind us of your marvelous works, the works of your hands, the works that can only be accomplished by an all-powerful God. Father, may we be drawn this morning into a spirit of worship and of praise, and may we have even a, another view, another fresh view of who you are and how we ought to give praise to you. Lord, may our hearts this morning be right before thee. May there be no unrepented, unconfessed sin in our lives. May we desire to have a pure heart to walk in your statutes and your principles and your precepts. May we take no sin lightly. Uh, may we confess all before thee. Father, I do pray now that as we study and we look together at this psalm, that again, our minds would be stayed upon you, uh, that it would be, we would be kept from the distractions of the day, the distractions of what all of us experience in a week, and we will come together this morning uh, here in this time of corporate worship around your word. We thank you, we praise you, and it's in Christ's name I pray, amen. Psalm 111 is also known as one of the Hallelujah Psalms. It is a hallelujah psalm because the first words of the psalm are praise ye the Lord, which is the same phrase uh, in the Hebrew that means hallelujah. That's hence why it is called one of the hallelujah psalms. Uh, it is the very first words. 
You'll notice that this particular psalm does not have a title. Many of the psalms have a title. This one has no title to it. If you're interested in the framework and the way the psalm is written, this is also what's referred to as an alphabetical psalm. Uh, in other words, if you were to go through this and go through it very carefully, uh, you would find that the alphabet in its order, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, it's, it, is, it follows this logical pattern. Now, we're not going to get into all of that, but that's something that you can maybe uh, look into on your own time if you'd like to. But we see that the main subject of this psalm are the works of the Lord, uh, primarily His works in creation, His works in His providence, and His work in grace. The psalmist, again, we're not told who the psalmist is. We're not told this particular psalm was written by David. We're not given that information. But we do see that the psalmist dwells upon one great main idea. And this great main idea is that God is to be known uh, by His people. Uh, when we know God, as we should know God, it will, in turn, lead us into practical reverence or worship or praise. It is when we know God that we can appropriately praise God. A lost world cannot praise a God that they do not know. Uh, we should not expect a world that is without Christ to praise God or to worship God. But the psalmist here calls his people into this knowledge, and he's speaking almost in a matter of fact. He's saying, if you know me, then I invite you to praise me. If you know me, praise me. We understand that practical reverence or a practical knowledge is what our true biblical wisdom is. The very last verse of this psalm uh, does tell us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's not the end of wisdom, it's the very beginning of wisdom. So to be wise is to have a fear of the Lord. To have a fear of the Lord is to know the Lord. I will not fear a God that I do not know. So this is a psalm of not only an invitation to praise, but a psalm that is to cause us to an eternal adoration, an adoration of his person. Now, we could, and the psalmist does, focus on his works. But are we, are we praising his works or are we praising the person? Primarily, we're praising the person. We're praising the works of God and the person of God. So we understand today that there are those who have a general understanding or a general knowledge of who God is. Uh, they might have a general understanding of creation. Uh, they may be creationists, we might say. They believe in literal creation. They believe in the six days and the seventh day of rest. Uh, but they are ignorant to the reality of what has really gone on in their heart. What has really changed. Uh, having just a knowledge of creation uh, is not in necessarily in a place of salvation. So the psalmist here is going through these entire lines of not just creation, but also the works of providence. And then thirdly, the works of grace uh, in the believer's heart. A, those who remain in an unconverted state um, are silent to the praises of God. Uh, they cannot remember or proclaim the works of someone they do not know. 
Now, how, how did we become aware of the works of God? We became aware of the works of God because the evilness of our heart, the depravity of that, was enlightened that we would be able to see the beauty of God's works. So that when we look upon him and we look upon the beauty of who Christ is, for example, it is because our eyes have been opened to that great truth to praise him and to know of his wonderful works. How do we get to know the Lord? Well, we get to know the Lord certainly by a diligent study of his word. This psalm is meant to arouse us. It's meant to bring us to a place where the effect is praise. It's not just here for our intellectual knowledge. It's not just here for us to have a greater understanding even of the great doctrines of the Bible, and those things are important, but the psalmist here, under the inspiration of the Spirit, is driving us and arousing us to this place that ought to be the natural result of a heart that's been enlightened. If my heart has truly been enlightened by God Himself, then the natural outflow of my lips is going to be praise, worship, and adoration. Uh, You do not have to make someone who truly knows God praise God. You don't have to trick them, manipulate them. You don't have to create the perfect environment that makes them say, oh, now the feeling is right so I can worship. No, if you truly know God, if you truly know Him, there is going to be a natural outflow of adoration that does not have to be stimulated by some human entity or by some human program. If you were to divide this psalm up, it's a very easily divided psalm. The psalmist begins with an invitation to praise in verses 1 through 3, and then he moves on to point us to the matter of the adoration of God's works, and his adoration is found in how he deals with his people. Uh, That is in Psalm 111, verses 4 through 10. And then the psalm ends with a commendation of the worship of the Lord. And he, in a sense, commends those who worship the Lord in the proper way, which is in reverence and in fear. So when we worship God, we are to do that with reverence. Uh, We are to do it with a sense of fear. Not fear uh, of a, of a, a sinful anger being displayed towards us, but we're to do it because we're to do it carefully. We're to do it thoughtfully. Uh, Corporate worship is not something that is just an event you come and do and you check it off on your calendar for the week and say, I went to worship this week. Uh, It is not, it is a, it is a outflow, a response to people who know the Lord. So this 111th Psalm is certainly filled with many great truths that we need to learn. So by way of a, of a pre-introduction, uh, if you will, the, the psalmist here is proposing something. It is, again, as I've mentioned, it is a reverent exhortation. Uh, it is a call to those who belong to the church of Christ. Not the denomination, the church of Christ, but the church of the body of Christ. It is called to those who are part of the body. This is not a call to the world. This is not a call to unbelievers and say, we're inviting you to come and praise God. It is strictly an invitation to the church. It's an invitation to the church to join in in the praising of Almighty God, 
We would refer to him in the Old Testament many times as Jehovah, all-powerful God. And we are called as the church, as the body of Christ, to praise him for his wonderful works. God's works are also God's gracious acts. Everything God has done towards us has been done in grace. It has been done not because there was any reason in us for him to demonstrate those works or acts towards us. They have all been acts and works of grace. They are all at his own pleasure. Now, why does he work these acts or these works? He makes these provisions for his people to remind us of his covenant with us. Not only of his covenant, but to remind us of his ordinances, what we are required to do. I understand requirements are a buzzword today. I understand your rights are a buzzword today. We may never change from that again. But we have responsibilities as the church to abide and obey. Uh, This is not the, 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 the age of get to do whatever we want to do. God has prescribed a way in which we are to act as the body and as the church. And so his ordinances and his provision for his people... We're thankful that those things are unchangeable because of his covenant. He he will not go back on his covenant because of who he is. He's God. He's made those promises. Those promises will remain. If we were to go down the list of the things we could be thankful for, the works, we're certainly thankful for his redemption, aren't we? We're certainly grateful that he saved us. We're certainly grateful that he did not leave us in our unsaved a doomed condition. And yet the psalmist ends by saying in this psalm that the fear or the knowledge of the Lord, that's where true wisdom is. The word hallelujah also ends this psalm. You'll notice that the very last words is praise. Hallelujah. Hallelujah bookends this psalm. It opens the psalm. It ends the psalm. So this first three verses... Are the, this is the invitation, if you will, to praise the Lord. You'll notice what the psalmist says in verse 1. He says, praise ye the Lord, I will praise the Lord with my whole heart. To have your whole heart praising God means to have the entirety of your being disposed or bent towards the praising of God. I'm afraid that many times, and I've been guilty of this myself, that when we think about praising the Lord, we have reserved a small part of our heart to give the praise to God. And it's kind of crowded out by the other things in our life. But we've said, I, I've got this part of my heart that I'm, I'm going to praise the Lord with. The psalmist doesn't say, I'm going to praise the Lord with one quarter of my heart. I'm going to praise the Lord with one half of my heart, three quarters of my heart. He says, with my whole heart. And he doesn't just mean the heart in his chest. He means the entirety of his being, not just the spiritual, but even the physical. My whole mind, my whole heart is bent towards the praise of the Lord. Now that's the key. That's the invitation. The psalmist is saying, as many times as David said in some of his psalms, as for me, here's what I'm going to do. The psalmist here is doing the same thing. He says, praise ye the Lord, hallelujah, I will praise the Lord. He is in a sense making a vow. He's vowing that with his whole heart, 
I will praise the Lord. Now, it's very good for us to have our whole heart engaged in the worship and the praise of the Lord. But it's only good if our whole heart is engaged in proper praise and proper worship. If we are worshiping God according to our own desires or what we think is proper, then God is not obligated to accept that type of worship. Proper worship means having a proper knowledge of God. You cannot call proper worship just because someone gathers together, holds a Bible in their lap, sings the hymns of the faith. You cannot say that just because they're doing the aesthetic things, that that means they're properly worshiping God. Notice he's not focused on the outward, he's focused on the inward, with my whole heart, the part that nobody can see. The problem today, and again, I'm not meaning to step on toes, but the problem today with much of the contemporary worship is not about the heart, it's about the outward appearance. We're trying to impress people with our outward responses to God. Now again, sometimes the outward response, it's you can't help it. But God is more concerned about the tenor of our heart than he is whether or not our outward is showing something. Some of the greatest times of praise and worship in our church have not been noticeable outwardly. There has been a time when, and some of you have been here during these moments, where there's just a, there's an unusual moving of the Spirit in the believers. And it's almost this response of humility. It did manifest itself in a great outward demonstration. But nonetheless, it was a praise. It was worship. So it is good that our whole heart is engaged in worship. But what is he saying he's going to where or in what is he going to worship? I will praise the Lord with my whole heart in the assembly of the upright and in the congregation. Now we're beginning to see that the psalmist is actually giving us a prescription, a blueprint for public worship. What is public worship to look like? Well, first of all, if you believe in the order of words, which I do, notice there is a determination to praise the Lord with a whole heart before the assembly of the upright and the congregation is mentioned. If you waited today to get here, to have something happen to you, to move you to a spirit of worship, you're probably still struggling this morning. You're still struggling to even be, be feeling alive today. There's a preparation that's supposed to take place before you ever get to corporate public worship. He says, I'll praise the Lord with my whole heart and in the assembly of the upright. When we prepare for public worship, when we join with the assembly of the upright or the righteous, what is he saying? We are joining together in worshiping the Lord. What are we worshiping and what are we supposed to say? We're supposed to repeat and recite his works. What he's done. What he's doing. His acts of grace towards us. His acts of mercy and provision towards us. Remember over the last couple of weeks, we dealt with the psalm dealing with church unity and dealing with the beauty of how it's supposed to be like that oil 
and that do. It's, it's supposed to be something that is it's beautiful and it joins us together. Uh, coming together to worship, to recite the works in which God, to celebrate his works, not just in creation, but in his providence in our lives, in his grace that's been freely given towards us, and of course, in him saving us. When a real congregation of true saints gathers together, this is what the psalmist has in mind. This is what it looks like. This is what it's supposed to sound like. This is, this is what a group of people in a congregation, in an assembly, are doing. What always strikes me in worship and praise throughout the Bible, the emphasis is never on the worshiper. Ever. It's never about the person really receiving anything. It's about the worshiper giving praise. Folks, we do not come to the house of God just to get and to take in. Now, we take in the word of God. We are to obey its precepts. We are to obey his command. No question about that. But if we come to worship saying, okay, give me something. You've come with the wrong heart. I've come to give praise to my Lord. I've come to praise him in this assembly of fellow believers in the body of Christ. And the beauty of that is unmatched in this world. The most beautiful thing you will ever see is a church that's worshiping in unity and worshiping properly, correctly, and most importantly, all those things come from the Bible. Biblically, this is that principle of worship. So when we come together, we have the subject. Notice I didn't have to give you a worship subject this morning. I don't have to give you a theme that says, now here's this reason we worship because of his works. We might, week after week after week, our minds might be focused upon one of his mighty works. It may be focused upon one aspect of his goodness. We could find ourselves at some time reciting over and over and over again one aspect of God's saving grace, one act of God's provision. But the point here is, is that these first words of the psalmist tell us that we are to prepare for this worship before we ever gather together for that worship. Praise ye the Lord. Again, the word Lord there is the same word for Jehovah. Jehovah, in ty- in encompassing Father, Son, the Holy Spirit. In the revelation of what they have given to us, remember this, that Father, Son, and Spirit are to be the subjects of our endless praise. Sometimes we get this wrong. We get this wrong because we overemphasize one aspect or one person of the Godhead to the neglect of another. We are to praise the Holy Spirit, and we can do that without being charismatic. We can do that without being emotional about everything. The Holy Spirit should be praised because the Holy Spirit is God. We should praise God the Father because of who He is. We, of course, should praise the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Certainly, we all would be in agreement with that. Endless praise is based upon the Father's everlasting love to the elect in Christ. The elect in Christ are 
free to worship and free to praise because of God's sovereign favor that's been placed upon them. Think about this. We have a right and a requirement to praise God because it's His will to do so. You know, when people ask the question, what's God's will for my life? It's often self-centered as well. What does God want me to do with my life? What is God, where does God want me to go? What's God calling me to? All important questions. But it is the will of God that you praise Him and worship Him properly. That is part of God's will. Because remember, your right and the requirement to praise the Lord here arises out of His purposes and plans for you, not based upon any cause in us. It is indeed a privilege to praise the Lord. It's not burdensome. When we have the right knowledge of God, we have a right understanding of, yes, subjects like God's love. But we have a greater understanding of God's love and how that love is shown to us in the person of Christ. It's specific. It goes deeper than saying God loves us. How do we demonstrate God's love to us? We demonstrate God's love to us in the person of Christ. So if you try to separate the Godhead, you you have a mess of a theology. But yet, when we understand that this everlasting love that God has for us is demonstrated to us in the person of Christ, who the Apostle Paul makes mention of words like beloved, chosen, blessed, accept, accepted before the world began, adopted. It is when these truths are comprehended that leads us to fully, as Paul said, to apprehend the knowledge of God. The knowledge of who He is. When we apprehend Christ, and then and only then, will we apprehend a knowledge of salvation. Some people are trying to understand salvation before they understand God's love demonstrated to us through Christ. You can't start with the part you don't know. Your first conversation with a person in darkness is not about how you get saved. It's about the knowledge of God. This is where we're missing it in our modern day evangelism. You are expecting a person who has no knowledge of God to have a suddenly have a light bulb moment where they now have a knowledge of God, have a knowledge of their sin, have a knowledge of the God, and then say, okay, I'll get saved today. To know Him leads to a praise of Him. Oftentimes we ask the question, well, I'm sure that person got saved six years ago. There's nothing ever changed. Because sadly, probably nothing did. They had an experience, a moment, but they never had a true knowledge of God. So the psalmist is not writing this psalm as a psalm of evangelism. Now again, can all of God's word be profitable? Absolutely. Is all God's word profitable? Let me rephrase that. Absolutely it is. But that's not the intended context or the intended audience of this particular passage. When we, when we comprehend who Christ is, we comprehend not only his person, 
We comprehend His holiness. We comprehend the purpose and the reason for His shed blood. We comprehend the reason for His righteousness, why we need His righteousness. We even comprehend Him being our great high priest, that mediator, this God who is our righteousness. It is on these matters that the psalmist is arousing our faith. Now again, we've in our morning worship this morning, we've arrived in Hebrews to the great hall of faith, the chapter of faith, chapter 11. And this morning we're going to define what faith is. We're going to have to take an entire message just to define what real faith is. Because man has perverted what faith actually is. Man has perverted it to the reality that he says, I'm the cause of my salvation. Well, that's not what Scripture says. Yet, when we are led into this comprehension of the love of God the Father demonstrated through the Son, it leads to a natural love of the Spirit as well. How it is the Spirit of God who revealed Christ to us, took the Word of God, gave us wisdom, gave us discernment, gave us understanding, and the Spirit who testifies of Jesus' love to us. You don't know about the love of Jesus unless the Spirit tells you about the love of Jesus. That's why we have this mushy love of Christ that is running rampant in our churches. This is not a mushy romantic love. We have got to get our minds out of this. And folks, this is coming and has been coming like a freight drain down the churches on the tracks for a long time. This is not, and and pardon this, it is not a romantic relationship with Jesus Christ. Some of our young women are being led astray, thankfully not in this church, but that that's the kind of relationship they're supposed to have with Jesus, some kind of a romantic. No! That is a false knowledge of God. There's nothing about that that's from God. That's not what this is. When we understand the love of Christ, we understand something that is based upon what we know about Him. We know His love because of the person. We know His love because of the work and the the ministry of grace that's being done in our life through the Spirit. The Spirit is He who understands us to really enjoy and know what the love of God is and reminds reminds us of our communion with Him. When we apprehend these things properly, when we find these subjects and we have them rightly, that's when we have proper worship. There is a level of frustration that churches are going through that people are not responding properly. We're just not getting people excited like we planned. So we've got to change it. We've got to do something. They just seem bored and unengaged. (laughs) You will never be bored and unengaged if you truly know the love of God. A person that tells me I'm bored at the preaching of the word, I'm very fearful for you. And I don't care who that speaker is. If that speaker is preaching the truth, he may not be the most eloquent of speakers, 
But you will never be bored with God's word being proclaimed and preached because it's going to resonate through you. And you're going to say, I never was called to adore that preacher. I'm called to adore my God. And preacher worship is running rampant. And folks, you've got to guard your heart against this. Do not worship the preacher. Worship the God of that man. Because anytime, even in our church, whoever stands up here and opens the word of God to you, they are preaching God's word. They're not preaching so that you will commend them. They want you to adore the God that you know. The psalmist is not talking about himself at all. You cannot draw out praise from a person who does not truly know the God in which he's called to praise. The psalmist here in that first verse is telling us that this will be the case in the assembly of the upright and in the congregation. There will be a praise of the Lord with the whole heart. Verse 2, the psalmist says, The works of the Lord are great, sought out of all them that have pleasure therein. This begins that section, and we'll just look at this verse and maybe touch on verse 3. This begins the section that runs down through verse 9 about the adoration of the works of the Lord. Specifically, here are those things that we adore. The works of the Lord, very simply, notice the natural outline here. The works of the Lord are great. They're great. And then he gives an example of why they're great. Sought out of all them that have pleasure therein. The psalmist, with respect to our own minds, we think about divine truth. When we hear the truth of God's word enter into our mind, okay, when we hear the word of God preached, it is never, and I'll use this term, it's maybe not the best word, it's never inactive. In other words, when the word of God is given, it's never without anything. It's never void. It's never dead. It's, it's never, well, that sounds good, but it doesn't have any life-giving power. The actual Word of God is life-giving power. It's the only thing that contains life-giving power that we can read and understand for ourselves. Every one of your Christian books on your shelf, in and of themselves, do not have life-giving power, no matter how eloquent that writer is. The infallible and errant Word of God is where the power comes from. That's what enters into our mind. The Spirit takes what's truth and illuminates those truths to us and begins to explain to us, give us discernment. This is what this means. The psalmist says, when I dwell in divine truth, here's a very simple principle that comes to my mind. The works of the Lord are great. Doesn't sound like a deep theological well, does it? But if you know God, the works of the Lord are great. That is a very deep theological well. They are great, and notice it says, they are sought out of all them that have pleasure therein. In other words, when we view God's acts and works in creation, in His providence, in the light of faith, that through the Spirit of God, we're given what's referred to as true knowledge. That's why we say the works of the Lord are great or glorious. It's only until divine truth enters in, it's only then that the greatness of those works becomes apparent. 
There are churches who have long ago ceased actually opening the Bible anymore. The Bible is not, it is now just a reference on a shelf. It's not read. It's not preached from. It is simply a book. And yet people come out saying, we had great worship today. Where did you get your infallible divine truth from that enlightened you to that, that you experienced something good today? You only got it from your own mental capacity. Somebody said, well, we sang hymns. Hymns are great. There's a reason why we're singing from this hymn book. But there are, throughout that book, hold on to your pews, there are errors throughout that book. Some places the wrong word has been used. Some words, there's misspelled words. It's not infallible. This and this are not equal. Nor if you go to a church or are a part of a church or people have been in church where the words are on the it does, on a screen, it doesn't matter. They're not equal. But this should only line up with this. You hear some worship music being sung and you said, that's not even true. That's not who God is. And then if they are singing improper worship, then they open the Bible and they try to give truth and it's like these two things don't match up. One is not like the other. But when divine truth act actually enters in, when it, we hear it, the Spirit of God takes that, shows us the greatness of it, shows us the glory of that truth, and we find pleasure in that with or without an outward response. We worship and adore the Lord for His work, not our program or not what we planned. Thirdly, His work is honorable and glorious. His righteousness endureth forever. What work is honorable and glorious? All of it. His righteousness endures forever. Whose righteousness? The righteousness that's found in the person of Christ. Jesus Christ who is the image of God. To see the Father, we see Christ. We look at Christ. We see the entirety of the Godhead in the person of Christ. The work of Christ as, his, as a mediator between God and man. That is an honorable work. There is nothing that can be compared to the work of Christ and what He has done. There's no glory in God if there is no work in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. The work of Christ in reconciling sinners and His work of mediating between us and God the Father is an honorable work. But it's only honorable if that work is based upon His person, His righteousness, and His sacrifice. If I alleviate or eliminate any one of those three, Please hear me carefully. If I talk about Jesus every single week and I repeat the works of Jesus and talk about him every single week, but I somehow ignore his person, his righteousness, or his sacrifice, I am proclaiming a false Christ. The popular place to land now, sadly, in our modern churches, is to just simply land on his person and stop there. 
His person is glorious. But his person is glorious only when taken in the entirety of his work, which includes his righteousness and his sacrifice. That principle is very important. The psalmist has in view not just one aspect of God, but the totality of the Godhead. One thing we often miss about the work of Christ is his obedience, his perfect obedience under the law. Christ fulfilled the law perfectly. And without that perfect sinless life, all of his other works would would have been without merit. He lived that perfect life. That is our righteousness. It is as if we lived a perfect life. And you and I know we haven't lived a perfect week. We haven't even lived a perfect day. I would go as far as to say we haven't lived a perfect minute. In spite of our own view of ourselves. Because we don't understand fully how we are 100% dependent upon the righteousness of Christ. The psalmist, as we'll see over the next, we'll look at next week. We read ahead just a little bit. I just want to just kind of give you this as a preview. Look what he says in verse 4. He said, he hath made his wonderful works to be remembered. How do we remember his works? In some midnight vision? No. We remember his works through his word. Every time you read a portion of Holy Scripture, you are being reminded and remembering one of his holy works. We are called to remember. We are called to be put into remembrance. The Apostle Paul even told young Timothy, he said, put them into remembrance. He didn't say come and introduce brand new doctrines. Don't come and introduce something new and exciting and is relevant to the day. He said remind them, put them in remembrance of what's already been done. What things do we remember? We remember the incarnation. We remember Christ's perfect life. We remember his sufferings, his death, his burial, his resurrection. We remember his obedience unto death, even the death of the cross. Continually, that is to be brought to our remembrance. Because it's in what Christ did that we are given an insight or a picture into the totality of worship of the Godhead. All were involved in the saving of our souls. The Father, Son, and the Spirit. So if you want to meditate on this or think about these things, pray on these things this week, really read over these things and, 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 and pray that the Lord will give you understanding. This has been, again, and this is one of the reasons we're staying in the Psalms. I, again, I, I love our confession study. We're going right back to it. But this has been so helpful to me. It's been so, such a blessing to me just to be reminded and put back into remembrance of the works of God. And I hope it'll do the same for you. I hope we'll be put back into remembrance of these things. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for the blessing of this psalm. And Lord, we're only not even quite a third of the way through it, and yet we are just brought to a place of needing to thank you and to praise you 
for these mighty works that have been done. Father, I pray that these truths would not escape us, that we would think on them often. We would take them in as our necessary food, that we truly would desire to praise the Lord with our whole heart, not just giving our God portions of us, but with our whole heart. I pray that this congregation, this assembly of believers, would truly think upon what these truths mean to us today. Father, again, thank you. Lord, I pray that you will prepare our hearts for our worship service this morning. Father, when we continue in worship, we continue to meditate and to recite the things that we've already heard. But Lord, may we have a heart that's come today not to get something, but to give praise and worship to our great God. We thank you, we praise you, and it's in Christ's name I ask these things. Amen.